This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... It's seen by all indications that momentum is shifting in favor of the Ethiopian government, where it's gaining more territory, it's making inroads into Tigray, and this will have implications for the negotiations that follow. That's Joseph Siegel, who leads the research program at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies on how the dynamics of the Ethiopian-Tigray conflict are shifting. Details coming up also. Gunmen attacked the Nigeria hospital and abducted at least 10 healthcare workers. Madagascar's foreign affairs minister was fired for voting at the UN. And one transportation union member says it will continue striking in South Africa despite an agreement for most employees to go back to work. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Ethiopian government forces are advancing in the country's Tigray region. Reports indicate they have captured three towns, including Shere, a city with a pre-conflict population of 100,000, about 50 kilometers from the border with Eritrea. The rebels confirmed that Shire and other areas have fallen to invading forces. Joseph Siegel leads the research program at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. His research interests include understanding the role of governance in advancing security and development, security trends in Africa, stabilization of fragile states, democratic transitions, and strengthening institutions of democratic accountability. I first asked Dr. Siegel if the dynamics in this long, drawn-out conflict are shifting. It seems by all indications that momentum is shifting in favor of the Ethiopian government, where it's gaining more territory, it's making inroads into Tigray, and this will have implications for the negotiations that follow. You know, both sides are trying to establish as strong a position as possible prior to negotiations so they can leverage the best deal possible. And so I think that's what's motivating the the government to continue. I think the the big question we want to be looking at uh, in terms of things spiraling out of control is to what extent the government proceeds as a stabilizing force or as a force that's exacting retribution. During earlier phases of the conflict, it seemed when the government would make inroads in Tigray, it wouldn't just be going after the the TPLF leadership, but it was also taking punishment out on uh, the Tigrayan population. And I think that's the big question uh, we want to be looking at now. Ultimately, this war is about what kind of federal state Ethiopia is going to be. And as we look at situation now in Tigray, the question is, how is Tigray going to be reincorporated into Ethiopia? And to the extent government proceeds uh, in a generous manner, uh, in a manner that's respectful of the Tigrayan population, it will be much easier to proceed with reintegration and to realize a, a stable Ethiopia moving forward. And what is the role of Eritrea in all this? 
the Eritrean role has always been very opaque and uh, and hard to discern. Clearly, they've been working alongside the Ethiopian government. The most obvious motivation for the Eritreans is one of retribution against the TPLF, given that it was the TPLF leadership that was in charge when there was the border conflict with Eritrea 20 years ago. And uh, an Eritrean president, Afwerki, uh, has never forgotten that, and he uh, holds a grudge against the TPLF. And so that is part of the, the motivation, and that's part of the risk for where this conflict is at, because the Eritreans are not necessarily acting in the interest of Ethiopia. They're not necessarily acting towards what is best, what's the best outcome for a federated uh, Ethiopian state. You know, they're pursuing their own interest, and that could be very destabilized. Lastly, you said there is a shift in the field. There is a shift in, in the politics. What do you envision in the next days or weeks to be happening in the Tigray region? The, you know, there's a couple of scenarios that we could see. On the one hand, you know, we could see uh, a new stalemate emerge and both sides recognize that in the end, this is a political dispute that has to be resolved through negotiation. And this latest jockeying is a matter of just getting the best leverage for those negotiations. And so then we'll, we'll see a resumption of the, of the dialogue and discussions about a peace settlement, which both sides believe have indicated it, that they're interested in doing. I think that's one scenario. Uh, another scenario is that the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian government feels that it has gained upper hand and it is making significant advantage and and will just proceed until it secures you know the key facilities within Tigray and will then be in a much stronger position to demand you know a capitulation from the TPLF and be in a, a stronger position for the negotiations of what that means for Tigray's role uh, as part of uh, a federal structure uh, under Ethiopia moving forward. And I think a third scenario is that the fighting proceeds, TPLF withdraws to its mountainous, rugged holdout areas, and then maintains some sort of guerrilla uh, activity in Tigray and, and the surrounding regions for some time to come, maintaining a high level of uh, instability in the region. And so you know, that scenario is a good incentive for the Ethiopian government to go ahead and proceed to negotiation, try to figure out a, a political settlement to this that's going to be enduring and stabilizing for the whole region. That was Joseph Siegel from the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He talked with me from Washington, D.C. For more on the Ethiopian Tigray conflict, VOA's Douglas Mpuga reached to Tedros Agaye, the CEO of Riot Media, a DC based Ethiopian media platform, who describes the situation in Tigray as dire. There's a lot going on, going on there uh, in the part where those uh, Ethiopian and the Eritrean army plus the Amhara special forces controlled. We hear that there's a lot of killings of the innocents. They're going house to house, they're looting, looting properties and asking people to give whatever they have. So uh, it's, it's very horrifying. As you might know, the Eritrean and the Ethiopian troops were in Tigray about uh, a year and three months ago. They stayed there for eight months, and it was reported all over the world that uh, the uh, horrific atrocities was committed. And now it seems that they are repeating that. And for example, in Shire, uh, yesterday they have uh, killed five 
innocence in a very horrific manner. And they're also looting properties. Uh, all the, they have uh, shut off the very few VSAT internet service that I think the NGOs or the aid, the aid providing uh, organizations were using. So it's very horrifying. I mean, there is part of Tigray. Tigray had been under siege for almost two years and uh, a very severe humanitarian crisis is unfolding. Millions are deprived of uh, basic services and humanitarian aid, and the situation is getting dire by the day. So it's very horrific out there. There's been talk from both sides of trying to maybe find a peaceful resolution of this conflict. Is that chance now gone forever? The international community isn't serious about uh, peace. That's just in my view. The international community is not taking a concrete action to stop this conflict. Had that been true, this conflict would have been stopped a very long time ago. Because, for example, the U.S. and the EU and other big donors of Ethiopia have uh, much leverage on the regime to force it to stop its carnage. But the international community is not doing anything. And the AU-led peace process, the so-called AU-led peace process, is also not going anywhere because the EU authorities are working hand-in-hand with the Ethiopian authorities to a point where they are drafting letters together to invite the Tigrayan authorities, which I'm sure you have heard about the failed attempt that was about to be held in South Africa. There is a Senate plan. It was a very rushed plan, even uh, plan, even uh, one of the mediators, Uhuru Kenyatta, rejected it saying that I don't know anything about this thing, I haven't been informed before, so I can't attend, you know. So I don't believe there is a a hope of peace in the horizon unless the international community is serious to stop this uh, devastating war. From what you're getting from your sources, how dire is the humanitarian situation? Oh, it is beyond words, I would say, because even the WHO as an institution, uh, the Director General, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, has also declared that this time, the worst humanitarian crisis on earth is in Tigray. Imagine, for a very long time, aid was not getting into Tigray by the deliberate blockade placed by the Ethiopian and the Eritrean government. And mind you, the people weren't well off before, in poverty before, at least we can say this about millions and millions of residents of that region. But aid wasn't getting in there. No basic services uh, provided to the people. So uh, in this situation, it's absolutely dire, and it's getting worse by the day. Uh, Tedros Agai, uh, CEO of Rayot Media, a DC-based Ethiopian media platform. He spoke with Douglas Mpuga from Silver Spring, Maryland. Over the nearly two years of conflict in Tigray, international rights and aid organizations have accused all parties to the conflict. That includes the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the Eritrean military, and the Ethiopian Federal Forces. All have been accused of attacking civilians, blockading humanitarian aid, and other abuses. Thank you. 
Tensions have risen to a fever pitch over the last 24 hours between Mali and France. Mali's foreign minister, Abdoulaye Diop, now says his country reserves the right to defend itself if France continues to, in his words, undermine his country's sovereignty and national security. At a UN Security Council briefing today, Diop accused France of violating Mali's airspace and delivering arms to militants in the north of the country. He called for a Security Council meeting to, in his words, bring to light evidence of duplicitous acts of espionage and acts of destabilization waged by France. Relations have soured between Mali and its former colonial ruler since a coup occurred in the West African country in 2020. France has defended its intervention in Mali, calling it fully transparent. Its representative said France never violated any airspace. Mali's foreign minister also denied his country's forces have violated human rights, an accusation made by the United Nations and other rights groups. Several reports have accused the Malian army and Russian mercenaries of being involved in civilian deaths and colluding with the extremist forces. Diop called the allegations unfounded. Mali has suffered from instability since 2012, when militants hijacked a Tuareg rebellion in the north. On Monday, four UN peacekeepers were killed when their vehicle hit an improvised explosive device in the Kidal region of Mali. Tunisia has reached a preliminary agreement with the International Monetary Fund for a loan for about $1.9 billion to ease the country's growing economic crisis. The IMF loan would require painful austerity measures that will have a social impact on Tunisian people. The required reform program includes containing the civil service wages and gradually phasing out generalized price subsidies, one expert says President Kais Saeed needs to communicate the details of the plan and why it is necessary to the public if the reforms are to succeed. However, Radwan Masmoudi, president of the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy, told VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi that Saeed is not likely to do that. He does not want to consult with anybody, and therefore he is not interested in real dialogue with other political forces or economic forces or organizations or the UGTT or anything. And without this popular support, these reforms will undoubtedly fail because they will not be supported by the people. They will not be understood by the people as why they are necessary or why they were designed. They will be seen as imposed, posed by the IMF, and people don't necessarily trust what the IMF wants to do in Tunisia. And then they will be seen also as imposed by Qais Saeed himself without any legitimate consultation and dialogue in the country so that there is no buy-in, there is no real conviction and understanding among the various population sectors and the various population groups of why these reforms are needed. And I think that's why this loan and these reforms that are being posed by Qaisas Haid and by the IMF, I think will push Tunisia further along the crisis and further towards real destabilization and real political explosions. Your Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy organized a discussion with former Tunisian President Mansouf Marzouki on the road map to restore democracy in Tunisia. What were his recommendations to achieve such a goal? 
Former President Marzouki considers that Qais Saeed has lost his legitimacy when he illegally and unilaterally scrapped the constitution, closed down the parliament, and single-handedly wrote a new oppressive constitution and also a new electoral code. President Marzouki is urging all the democratic forces and all the democratic parties in Tunisia to unite against Qais Saeed and against his illegal and illegitimate coup. He is urging all the Tunisians to put away their differences and to work together to restore real democracy in Tunisia. So what role can the international community, especially the United States, play to help restore democracy in Tunisia? I think the international community has a very uh, important role to play, and it has a duty, really, to support democracy. It's in the interest of the United States and in the interest of the international community to support democracy in Tunisia. First of all, by not supporting dictatorship, you know, by not supporting the coup, and, and by not recognizing this new regime as a legitimate regime. This regime... The international community must exert maximum pressure, in my opinion, on this illegal and unconstitutional regime and must suspend all economic and military aid and cooperation until democracy is restored. And this was recently mentioned and highlighted in the recent decision of the African Court for Human Rights and the Rights of the People. And the decision of the African Court has stated clearly that all the decisions made by Qais Saeed since last July 2021 are both illegal and unconstitutional and must be reversed. I think the international community has a role to play in pushing high society to restore democracy. And this must be a condition also for giving the Tunisian government this uh, IMF loan. That was Radwan Masmoudi, president of Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy here in Washington. He spoke by phone with my colleague, Mohamed al-Shinawi. Kais Saeed was elected president in 2019. In 2021, he dismissed the prime minister and gave himself all executive power, saying the country faced grave dangers. The move was criticized as a coup. In July, Tunisia held a referendum on a new constitution, which critics say solidified Saeed's one-man rule. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There, you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Gunmen in northwest Nigeria attacked a hospital and abducted at least 10 healthcare workers yesterday. Hospital and military sources told Reuters that 20 people were kidnapped, including staff and patient relatives at Gulu General Hospital in Lapai local government in Niger State. The Nigerian Association of Resident Doctors says 20 of its members have been kidnapped this year. The news service notes that armed bandits have abducted or killed hundreds across northwest Nigeria and that the Islamist militants have taken over multiple communities. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce's U.S. Africa Business Center is convening its first 
annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the Africa Business Center on this initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, the top 10 finalists have been decided, and for the next two weeks, we will bring you a look at each one. Today, we hear from David Njonjo from Kenya. His startup, Grow Agric, provides a platform to help small and mid-sized farms to farm better and earn more. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is David Jonjo. I'm 38 years old. I'm the COO and co-founder at Grow Greek and I am a proud Kenyan. We applied primarily because um, we met the criteria um, once we saw the announcement uh, coming out. And we saw this as an opportunity for us to spread our gospel um, you know, to, to other markets and to other people. To get uh, you know, sort of recognition from, from, from others um, outside there in the market and people in, in other countries um, is a big achievement for ourselves. So it's something that we are proud of. Basically, Grow Greek uh, is an end-to-end solution providing farmers with logistical, financial, um, and market support. So we work with farmers from inception when they're starting. We train farmers. Um, we provide them with financing for, for all the inputs that they require. Um, we help monitor their farming process. We, we've created digital record-keeping tools um, where farmers are able to manage their farms um, and track how well they're performing. At the end of the farming cycle, then we help them also sell their produce um, at, for competitive prices. There's a huge gap. Um, across Africa in terms of, of, of food production and we, are, we, are, we haven't been able to feed our population. So by helping these farmers increase their production, then we're also helping to fill that gap and ensure there's enough food to go around for the population. We also have programs where we're also en enabling the youth, um, so where we work with experienced farmers and we match them with, with um, a, farm, a newbie, so to speak, farmers who are, who are setting up. And through learning from them and ha having that knowledge transfer, then we're able to sort of improve um, and create employment opportunities. So the first thing we will do when we win the competition um, will be to celebrate um, with, with, with our farmers, um, with the people within the team that, that we've been really working hard um, to get up to this point, um, and then use the resources that, that are going to be deployed um, uh, to us um, to expand our offering, um, to improve on our processes, um, and get to a point where we're able to move the needle towards obtaining our vision of having over half a million uh, farmers by the end of 2025. Madagascar's president has fired his foreign affairs minister for voting at the United Nations to condemn Russia's annexation of four partially occupied regions in Ukraine. 
two senior officials at the office of Madagascar's president, Andri Rajolina, told Reuters that Minister Richard Ran Deria Mandrato was dismissed for last week's vote. 143 nations at the General Assembly voted in support of Ukraine. 18 of the 35 that abstained were Africans. The news service notes that until last week, Madagascar had abstained on votes related to Russia's invasion of its neighbor and has sought a position of neutrality and non-alignment. Many African countries have economic ties with Russia and had close ties to the former Soviet Union. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhibi in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Thank you.